Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. What a delicious privilege it is to be back home. This is my 23rd consecutive year. From the year 1996, the Lord has allowed me to come to the Liberty Heights Church. You are my people, and we will spend eternity in glory. I do not take this for granted. Thank you for loving me. My wife wanted to be here. She's at her church. She's on the committee in ministry of the graduate recognition uh, ministry. And the graduates are being uh, recognized today and given scholarships and all of that. So she sends her love. Uh, but she's here because I'm here. And uh, I'm there because she's there. Uh, because we really are inseparable. Physiologically, yes. But uh, in terms of essence, we are one. So thank you for loving Wanda and Robert all of these years. Pastor Brad uh, Cunningham and Sister Cunningham, thank you for having me. And it's so good to see all of you. I want you to think with me from Psalm 23 today, Psalm 23 today. I want to talk about the God of our help and our hope. The God of our help and our hope. Isaac Watts penned this poignant hymn. Oh God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. The psalmist David picked up his pen of inspiration and dipped it in the ink of illumination and penned these words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to contend this morning that those who trust God the Father as shepherd are enabled by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. I want to argue this morning that those who trust God the Father as shepherd are enabled by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. Now, I'm Trinitarian, so I have to say that a third time. Those who trust God the Father as shepherd are enabled by the Spirit of Christ to live a life of tranquility in the midst of turbulence. Trinitarian essence permeates this entire psalm. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, 
but God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God the Father is explicitly present. The psalm opens with him. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. It closes with God as shepherd. It says, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, forever. In other words, this psalm opens and closes with God the Father as shepherd. It teaches us that if you really want to have a fulfilled life, it really needs to begin with God, end with God, and have God all the way in the middle. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is why I say this to young people. Start your life with God. While you're in the springtime of your life, don't wait until the winter season comes. Start. And then when you graduate from high school and you go to college or you're on your own, don't take a vacation from God. And then when you get old like me, stay with God so that there is no interruption at all. The beginning, the end, and God all the way in the middle. Some know what it's like to start with God and then take a vacation from God from age 20 to about 45 and then resume life with God until the end, and you miss so much, and you regret it because you were trying to experiment and find joy and looking for love in all the wrong places. No, 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 no. Don't take a vacation from a God in your midlife years. And then there have been some, unfortunately, who have left God out at the end and come back in the last day or so. No, you don't lose your salvation. You lose that intimacy. You lose that fellowship. As David would say, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. No, I have not lost my salvation, but my joy is gone. I want my joy to be renewed. So this psalm explicitly expresses God the Father's shepherd. It opens with God. It closes with God as Father. It talks about Christ as Son inferentially. It intimates that Christ is there. Though not named, he is there. For these things that are said about the shepherd could never be true without Christological presence. For instance, Zechariah 13 and 7 talks about Christ and says, When the shepherd is smitten, the sheep will scatter. Only Christ could fulfill that. And that happened right when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples left. Or John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And there's that great word in 1 Peter 5 and 4. When the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive, we shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. And all that awesome word in Hebrews 13 and 20, where Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd. He is present in this psalm even though he is not explicitly named in terms of inference, he is there. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it seems as if the vision is greatly reduced and the volume is greatly restricted. It's as if the Spirit is muted. It is as if the Spirit is opaque. He's not there, is he? 
God has forever known himself in a sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forever. So that God cannot be trichotomized at all. When he acts, he acts as his triune self. The Spirit of God is present. So we hear the words of Philip Melanchthon, an associate with Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, saying to us in his 1521 Losi, commonplaces, to know Christ is to know his benefits. To know Christ is to know his benefits. Uh, I think the same thing could be said about the Holy Spirit. To know the Holy Spirit is to know his benefits, to know what he does, to know his attributes, to know his characteristics, uh, to know his essence. So what does he do? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That is an attribute of the Spirit. He leads. For Jesus says in John 16 and 13, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will lead us in all truth. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And you hear that same statement uh, in the 51st Psalm. What David says, restore unto me, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And where does joy come from? According to Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy, not happiness. Happiness takes place because things that are affirming are happening. As long as things are happening, well, you're happy. But joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. Joy has to do with your interiority so that you can be in a Philippi jail with Silas and you can be praying and singing even though you are incarcerated because joy comes from the inside out and happiness takes place on the outside and gives you good feelings for a while until circumstances change. He makes me the light down the green paths. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. The Spirit leads us in right paths, wagon tracks, paths that have been proven, and paths that are oftentimes paths that are the road less traveled. It's what Proverbs 14 and 12 and also 16 and 25 mentioned twice in the book of Proverbs. So it must be important. There is a way that seems right, but the end thereof are ways of death. And therefore the Spirit takes and leads us in paths that are righteous, unpopular, unconventional, not politically correct all the time but paths of righteousness for his glory, for his name's sake. I find it very interesting that Jesus says to us in John 16 and 14 that when the Spirit comes, he will not glorify himself, he will glorify me. That is the major purpose of the Spirit, to give glory to Christ, to uplift Christ. So any song that we sing and any sermon that we preach that does not give glory to Christ is a song that fails to reach its purpose. In fact, I tell people, if the Spirit does not glorify Christ, the Spirit is basically unemployed because he comes 
to lift up Jesus. That's why we come here. Did you hear what that Gatron is singing? What a wonderful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ. So lift him up. Lift the Savior up for, for men to see. So that men can give glory and women can give glory. And boys and girls can give glory to Jesus Christ our King. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, for his glory, for his honor, for his renown. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Fear. Because the Spirit, according to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 and 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. He emboldens us. He puts steel in our bones so that we are not ashamed of him. I fear the evil because you are with me. The Spirit is not just with us. He is in us. And Jesus reminds us in John chapter 14, verse 17, that when the Spirit comes, he will not only be with us, he will be in us. And not only will he be in us, he will speak through us. And so the psalmist says, I will fear you because you're with me, your rod and staff. Mm, they comfort me. There's that word. For the Spirit is our comforter, our paraclete, one who comes alongside of us to help us. You and I are not capable of living the Christian life on our own human strength. You just can't do it. And the more you and I try, the more you and I realize, therefore we cry out to the God of our hope and our help. And we say to him, Lord, we really do believe, but help thy unbelief. He comes to help us. In that 14th chapter of John, verse 16, Jesus talks about the comforter, the spirit. He says, I'm going to send you another comforter. There are two Greek words for another. One is the word heteros, a different kind. Mm. Heterosexual, male and female. The other is alon, of the same kind. I'm going to send you not a heteros comforter, a hetero spirit who is different than who I am. I'm going to send you an alon spirit of the same kind, just like me. Mm. Because God is, as Father, God without skin. He's spirit. That's John 14, 24, uh, that uh, God is not a spirit. That's not in the Greek. God is spirit. So God the Father is without skin. He doesn't have skin. God the Son takes on our skin. So Jesus says in John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh. The Word became flesh. God became who he was not, human, and yet remained who he is, God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as Eugene Peterson says in his message Bible, the word became flushed and moved into our neighborhood. I like that. Dwelled among us. God the Father is without skin. God the Son is with skin. But God the Holy Spirit gets inside of our skin. And he walks with us and talks with us and tells us that we are his own. And the joy we share there as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Oh, so therefore we do not fear. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I'm going to have to let that go because I've got to get done by 11.25. He anoints our head with oil because the Holy Spirit does anoint us. He has set us apart. He has chosen us. Do you realize that you are a chosen generation? 
Do you realize that you're a holy people? Not based upon your actions or my actions. No, he's made us holy. He has by his blood cast away our sins. So when he looks at us, it's, it's the most amazing thing. Because when I look at myself, I don't see that. But when he looks at us through the blood, he sees us as being faultless. Think about that. Guiltless, shameless, blameless. So we come to give praise to a holy God who is holy in himself and chooses to make us holy. He anoints us with oil. Our cup runs over. We can't contain all of him. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, but keep on being filled. It's in that continuous sense. Keep on being filled with the Spirit so that you can be strengthened. People are always going around, Christians are, talking about how much of the Spirit they have. That's not the question, how much of the Spirit do you have? The question is, how much of you does the Spirit have? In terms of us rendering and surrendering Him, I will. And that must be done every single day because every morning I get up, I have to declare that God is sovereign and take myself by the back of my shirt and say, you are under new management. You are not in charge. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And I've been saved now for 63 years. I have to keep reminding myself of that because myself wants to take control. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and I will, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, this psalm begins with, the Lord is. Mm. E.V. Hill, the renowned African-American preacher who pastored the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, California, who now uh, is roaming in the precincts of heaven, said that he had preached a revival in the New York City area, and he boarded the plane. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He was tired. In those days, revivals lasted from Friday to Saturday, sometimes started on Sunday and went to Friday. And he said that he knew that the only way he could make sure that no one would talk to him is that he picked up his Bible and started just looking at his Bible. Because I tell you, I, I do that, but not because I don't want people to talk to me, but because I'm meditating. You know, people won't talk to you when they see the Bible. Now, if you have any magazine or any other book, fine, but not the Bible. And uh, he just let the Bible open, and it fell on. These are his words. And I heard him. Psalm 23. And he started to read. And from New York to L.A., over four and a half hours, more than that, five hours plus, when the plane landed, he had got no further than the Lord is. Three words. How in the world? I mean, is he a really slow reader? Three words in over five hours? But he got stuck on the isness of God. The Lord is. He understood that it's important for us to continue to talk about God in the present tense. We've come to a place where we really do need to update our testimony. We don't mind talking about God in terms of the heretofore, the past, or the hereafter, the future. But the here and now, we don't talk about him as much. We love the quote Hebrews 13 and 8. Jesus Christ is saying today, yesterday, and forevermore. But most of our emphasis is, is on yesterday, forevermore, but not today. The Lord is. That's 
That's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 27 and 1, The Lord is my light and my shepherd, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 46 and 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. That's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 100 verse 6, The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Am I saying about God and what he is doing in my life now? Not when I lived in another city, but right now. Update your testimony. The Lord is. Somebody just got out of the hospital. The Lord is my doctor. God has reversed your financial history. The Lord is my financier. Someone has struggled with a relational rift. The Lord is my wonderful counselor. And all of us may not have the same story because our experiences are different. But we know that he is presently working in our lives. The Lord is my mm, sense of sanctified selfishness. There are 80 Psalms, 80 that deal with the shepherd and sheep. And all of them except one deal with the shepherd and the fold of sheep, the flock of sheep. This is the only psalm that deals with the shepherd and a sheep in the sense of singularity, one sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd of me. Just me. We ought to have a sense of isolating everyone else and seeing how God is working with us, with me. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply. Now, I know he's other folks' God, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Look at that blind man in John chapter 9. He's never seen the lily in his purple purity. He's never seen the rose in his crimson splendor. He's never seen his mother father. He's never seen a cloud in the sky. He's never seen anything. He was born blind. But Jesus encounters him, and Jesus sets up a pharmaceutical practice on the side of the road and spits into some dirt and anoints his eyes and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. He sent him to Siloam. Siloam means sit. So he sent him to sit, and he washed his eyes and came back seeing. And the church bosses looked at him and said, how is it that you are not able to see? He said, a man by the name of Jesus. Now, he had been to seminary. A man by the name of Jesus. Spit in, spat in some clay and anointed my eyes and told me to go to Salom. I washed and now I'm sick. You know what they started doing? They began, began to um, uh, criticize and critique this. They said, oh, Jesus, he's a sinner. Now, the man didn't go to Southern Seminary. His response is, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. That is not good theology. You don't know whether he's a sinner? Or he may be, he may not be. He said, but one thing I do know, and you know it now, I used to be blind, but now I see. Oh, brothers and sisters, something happens when Christ meets us. 
We don't find Jesus. He finds us. He's never been lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It's your minus in terms of your relationship with Christ. And you hear Job saying in Job 19, verse 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the latter day he will stand upon the earth, and after the skin worms have devoured my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall not behold another. Oh, when we have to face death, it's important that we be able to talk about our relationship singularly with him. Not a second-hand relationship that we've had as, as a result of our mother or our father who became Christians or our best friend who became Christians. You need a one-on-one -on -one experience with God throughout your life so that when the benediction is pronounced and the curtains are closing, you can look to him and say to him, you are my, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. That, that word. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, we want the Lord to be our shepherd. Our struggle is the reverse. We don't want the shepherd to be our Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. But is the shepherd our Lord? Because the word Lord means boss, in charge. I want you to be my shepherd so you can continue to provide for me. I like that. And feed me and take care of me. But when you become, as our shepherd, you become our Lord, then you not only order our steps, but you order our stops. And then you start meddling in our affairs. And we don't like that. But he is our shepherd and he is our Lord. And we yield to him. I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. A little girl quoted this psalm. She misquoted it, but... She was theologically on point. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. What more do I want? And the truth of the matter is, when the Lord is your shepherd, you don't need anything else. Now, I know we have a lot of wants. And what he wants to do is cause our wants to dissipate and eventually disappear until all we really understand is that we have all we need in him. Because after all, we can keep on asking God for things that we want but not need. And we'll get what we want, but we will not want what we get. And it's hard to unget what we got. And some of us are still living with trying to shake off that um, he didn't want us to have. And what he wants us to do is stop trying to pry open the door but pray open the door. And if the door doesn't open by prayer, stop kicking at it. Stop prying on it. Because what you may get, you may have for the rest of your life. And then what God wants ultimately is for us not to have any wants, but for us to have needs, which he himself will supply. I've come to understand this. I really have. That when we have in Christ all that we need, our wants began to be less and less and less. And eventually, you won't want anymore because you have what you need. Uh, one of the great saints that I've known, Mother Maddie Johnson, who I pastored for a number of years at New Mission Baptist Church, before she got saved, she was a serious 
drinker and drunk, a chain smoker. But when she got saved, uh, instead of getting up in the morning, and this is not condemnation of anyone, I'm just talking about Maddie Johnson. Uh, she had to always have uh, a cigarette, and she would smoke five and six packs a day. Uh, but she just had that urge after many years to, get, to take another puff. She took the puff and blew it and almost died because she no longer wanted what she wanted before. She just had, a, you know, a little urge to return to it. I tell people, when God takes and exercises, casts out the demons from us, it does not mean that the demons stop chasing you. They still chase you. You know what happened with Jesus after he is tempted by the devil in the wilderness? The Bible says that the devil departed from him for a season, which means he's coming back. So don't you think because you've got victory over this or that or that or that or that or that and you've been delivered from this, 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 that or that, that the demons are gone. They are waiting for an opening and a crack and they're going to come back at you and knock on your door and you and I will have to pray to him, that is to the Father, to give us what we need so that we will no longer want what we have stopped wanting and just have what we need and all that we need is in Christ. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down. I tell you, this, this clock is the fastest clock. Uh, <laughs> going all the way from Australia and all the way. No clock runs as fast as the clock here at Liberty Heights Church. And I think the reason for that is I just enjoy being with you. So, all right, I've got six minutes. Lord, have mercy. I got to cut across the country now. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me. It's a causative verb. He makes me. I don't want to do it, but he makes me. He folds my four feet under and makes me lie down in green pastures. I do have a pastor friend who uh, was coming down the steps, pastors the Mount Carmel Baptist Church here in Cincinnati, going to the pulpit to preach, concrete steps. I've come down there many times as a guest preacher. He fell and uh, broke his broke a leg and ribs and all of that. Seems unfortunate that you would have to have a fall on your way to the pulpit to preach, but it did. And they found out as they began to mend that which was broken that he had cancer in his leg. They would have never known that cancer was there until he fell. And now the mending has been done. He's been preaching for two years no problem, stronger than ever. I don't know why it is that God makes us lie down. Why does God send a Joseph down to Egypt? Why? So that he might be the one who will interpret the Pharaoh's dream so that there will be bread in a famine-stricken land, not only for the Egyptians, but for his own brothers. And so that meant that Judah would not have died of famine because Judah lived, Boaz would be born because Boaz was born, Obed would be born because Obed was born, Jesse would be born because Jesse was born, David would be born because David was born, Jesus would come. God has a way of causing us, and we don't see it right then. It's Soren Kierkegaard, that 19th century Danish theologian, who reminds us life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And sometimes you discover years later that God was up to something, and you look on in, on the pages of your autobiography, every one of them, and you see theological and Christological fingerprints on every single page. God was dealing with you then in order to set you up 
to bless you and use you in a great, great way. So he says to them, he calls me to lie down in green pastures, not pastures of brown grass, but green pastures. In shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet. God leads his dear children alone. Where the cool waters flow, bathes the weary one's feet. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the flood. Some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrows. But God gives a song when? In the night season and all the day long. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Mmm. Not stagnant waters, but still waters. You know, uh, we just came back from Scotland. We were there preaching on the, the mainland as also the islands and lecturing. A lot of sheep there, all kinds of sheep. Mm. And I, what I'd been saying all along and had studied, I got a chance to witness. Sheep cannot drink rapidly flowing waters. Sheep have to sip. Because as they lean over to drink rapidly flowing waters, because of their top heaviness, I've often wondered if God, you know, of course I'm saying this tongue in cheek, has made a zoological mistake. I mean, he gives uh, these sheep, 100, 100, 125 pound sheep, toothpick legs. It seems like God could have done better than that. But a sheep can lose its balance and fall over into the water, and the water fill its wool or coat and drown. But no, what the good shepherd will do will take large boulders, stone, and dam up a section of that area so that the rapidly flowing waters can't get to it, and enclosed within it is still water. And sheep will just, like he has his own private drinking fountain. We often give all of our praise to God for his provision, what God provides. We don't praise God much for his prevention, what God prevents. If you and I could just really have a good sneak preview and see how close to death and danger we were. Some of you sitting here right now, you know that you've been near accidents and other things have taken place. You didn't get out of it because you were so dexterous in terms of your skill and your agility. No, there was divine intervention. And you are here today not accidentally, incidentally, or coincidentally. You are here by providence. And therefore, God has damned up stuff to keep from getting to you. So you could. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That means he stands us up on our feet. I said to you, and sheep are top heavy. And because of their enormous body sometimes and their toothpick legs, they lose balance. I talked to a sheep farmer over in Scotland just a little bit ago. Same thing. And if they fall over because of the ab abominable, uh, abdominal uh, muscles, the abdominal muscles, the stomach muscles, uh, the gas, uh, acids will be excreted. And they can die of suffocation while they're on their back unless there is a diligent shepherd to stand them back up on their feet. David needed that. 
He was successful in fighting against the giant Goliath. He was unsuccessful in fighting against the giant adultery. And when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, according to the law of the word, he was supposed to be taken to a wall and stoned to death because there was capital punishment as far as that sin. But you know what God did? Picked him back and stood him on his feet and let him go on to be the psalmist that he was and the leader. And he never went back to that. I wonder if there's anybody here aside from Robert Smith, that God has had to stand back up on their feet. I mean, when it comes to your health, I mean, when it comes to your relationship, is there anybody here that God has given a second chance and said to them, I have reclaimed you, I have redeemed you, I will still use you, and my time is supposed to be up. And I hate that, but I know that I'm going to quit because I'm going to quit. <laughs> I leave you with this. The 23rd Psalm is a psalm that begins with God coming to our house. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in my green pastures. He comes to my house. But it closes with us going to his house. Surely! Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so one of these days when life is over because this shepherd Jesus Christ did die to shed his blood, but the Spirit of God rose, raised him up on Sunday morning, according to Romans 8 and 11, we will dwell in his house forever, and the shepherd who will sit at the center of the throne in Revelation 7, 15 to 17, shall lead us to fountains of living water. Come to this fountain, so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. I've been invited to come back next year, July the 5th, Lord willing, and I'll pick up where I left off today.